You're listening to the Design for Disaster radio podcast with Josh Cormier. Episode 2, American Airlines Flight 587, Train to Fail. Part 1, A Return to Normality. American Airlines first officer, Sten Molin, loved to fly. Driven by his love for the career, he was able to rise quickly through the ranks at American Airlines. Molin had been a pilot for his entire adult life, and was also the son of an airline pilot before that. Nothing could deter Molin from his dream job including the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. On that morning, Mullen was sitting in the cockpit of an aircraft at JFK Airport in New York. From his cockpit, he witnessed the airplane collide with the South Tower of the World Trade Center. A friend asked him why he wouldn't give up flying in light of the security situation with the airlines. Mullen simply replied that he would pay to do the job he was doing. Mullen's professionalism and fondness for the job were evident in his abilities as a pilot. According to interviews conducted with fellow pilots, Mullen's flying was described as smooth and accurate. He was viewed by some of his co-workers as a perfectionist, which is not necessarily a bad thing in a profession where attention to detail is so important. On November 12, 2001, Mullen woke up at 5.30 a.m. for another day of his favorite route, New York to Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. It was a route that provided a nice schedule to the experienced first officer. Getting back into a schedule of the reliable and familiar must have been important to him only two months after 9-11. For Molin in the country, the best answer to terrorism was a return to normality. Part 2. Not Again At 9.01 a.m., American Airlines Flight 587, loaded with 251 passengers and 9 crew, backed away from the gate. The sky was clear and the temperature felt solidly in the 30s. Chilly weather to be outside, but great weather for flying as the cool air is more dense than warm air and therefore better for aircraft performance. Mullen would be piloting the aircraft today alongside Captain Edward States. JFK Ground Control gave instructions to the crew to taxi to runway 31 left for takeoff. As they taxied, Mullen moved the controls through their full range of motion, feeling for normal operation. The flight data recorder indicates that he did so without issue. At 9.11 a.m., Japan Airlines Flight 47, a Boeing 747, was cleared to take off from runway 31 left. Mullen and Edwards waited in their Airbus A300-605 Romeo, short of the runway, for the um, clearance to position. About 30 seconds later, ATC directed American Airlines Flight 587 to position and hold on runway 31 left and advised them to be aware of possible wake turbulence from the Japan Airlines 747. This wake turbulence report received noteworthy attention from Mullen. To understand why wake turbulence, to understand wake turbulence and why it mattered to Mullen, it is best to visualize air as a visible fluid, like water. When a boat travels through the water, it displaces the water, resulting in waves that promulgate away from the boat. Naturally, bigger boats produce bigger waves. For aircraft, that is similar but a bit more complex. The wake turbulence from aircraft produces horizontal vortices that increase in diameter and usually move downward until they decay completely or impact the ground. Imagine rings of circulating air growing from the wingtips. The wake is caused by the aerodynamics of the airfoil. As the airfoil moves through the air, greater pressure is generated below the airfoil than above it, 
Because of this, the air moves from high to low pressure by looping around the outward tip of the wing. Wake turbulence is most dangerous to trailing aircraft when taking off and landing, behind a heavy aircraft. This is because the heavy aircraft is generating a significant amount of lift while moving relatively slowly, leaving the wake vortices more densely packed into one area. In addition to this, the aircraft encountering the wake turbulence does not have as much altitude to safely recover from the disruption. This disruption may result in the aircraft rolling to the left or right up to 40 degrees, potentially resulting in a crash. Given the potential dangers of wake turbulence, and at the very least discomfort to passengers from the bouncing and rolling of the aircraft, it is understandable that pilots would be aware of wake turbulence and actively avoid encountering it. This is done by remaining above the flight path of the preceding aircraft during takeoff and landing, and delaying takeoff in order to give it time to decay. This is generally takes about one to three minutes. In position on the runway for takeoff, States and Mullen were double-checking their instruments, indications, and controls. They also reaffirmed who had control of the aircraft flight controls for takeoff. Positive handoff of flight controls is an important part of effective cockpit crew coordination. There should never be any confusion or doubt as to who has control of the aircraft and what their duties are. Shortly after JAL-47 was cleared to take off, American Airlines Flight 587 was cleared to take off. After receiving the clearance from Mullen, ask, uh, after receiving the clearance, Mullen asks States if he is happy with the separation distance between the two aircraft, presumably because of wake turbulence concerns. The captain states, We'll be okay once we get rolling. He's supposed to be five miles by that time we're airborne. That's the point. The first officer then replies, So you're happy. After this exchange, American Airlines Flight 587 proceeds to take off from JFK following the same flight path as JAL-47. At 9.13 and 1 minute and 40 seconds behind JAL-47, American Airlines Flight 587 begins its takeoff roll. With the engines roaring, the aircraft accelerated down the runway and lifted off 35 second, 38 seconds later. At about 500 feet altitude, American Airlines Flight 587 began a climbing left-hand turn to heading 220 degrees. Communications to the airplane from ATC continued normally, as did communications within the aircraft. At 9.15 and 29 seconds, Captain States commented, Clean machine. This was a statement about the condition of the aircraft being clean, meaning the flaps, gear, and slats had been retracted, bringing the aircraft to a clean configuration and free of a large amount of drag-inducing surfaces. By this time, the aircraft had leveled its wings while continuing to climb through 1,700 feet. Seven seconds later, the aircraft encountered turbulent air, resulting in a slight pitch change, slight roll, and a significant drop measuring 0.3 Gs. A drop of this amount would have left a 200-pound passenger feeling as though he weighed 140 pounds momentarily. For an experienced airline passenger, this would have been notable, but not unusual. In the cockpit, Mullen made inputs on the yoke from 2 degrees nose up to 2 degrees nose down, along with 7 inputs left and right, ranging from 37 degrees right to 34 degrees left. His rudder inputs resulted in a maximum deflection of the rudder from 2 degrees left to 0.6 degrees right. All of Mullen's control inputs lasted for 5 seconds in response to the turbulence encounter. 3.7 seconds after the conclusion of Mullen's control inputs, Captain States casually mentions, A little wake turbulence, huh? Mullen responded, Yeah. Mullen then requested that airspeed be set to 250 knots. 
the maximum allowed below 10,000 feet. Three seconds later, the aircraft encountered more wake turbulence. With the second encounter of wake turbulence, the situation deteriorated into catastrophe. Mullen moved the yoke from 25 degrees left to 64 degrees right. He moved the rudder pedal 1.7 inches to the right. A few moments later, he requested in a strained voice, Max power! This was apparently concerning enough that states responded with, You alright? Mullins responded that he was fine. A moment later, states told Mullen, Hang on to it! Hang on to it! Mullins' response was, Let's go for max power, please! During this cockpit cockpit interaction, Mullen is moving the yoke 64 degrees right to 78 degrees left, full deflection, to 64 degrees right back to 78 degrees left. At the same time, he is moving the rudders 1.7 inches right, 1.7 inches left, 1.7 inches right, 2 inches right, 2.4 inches left, and 1.3 inches right. If you had been watching these movements in the cockpit, it would have taken place over the course of 6 seconds and appeared steady, but extreme, however not violent or erratic. The rudder inputs made by Molin deflected the rudder 11 degrees to the left, and 3 seconds later, it was between 10 and 11 degrees to the right. The aircraft's sideslip angle, angle between the direction of travel of the aircraft and the direction at which it was pointed, went from 7 degrees to the left to 11 and 12 degrees to the right. The following is taken from the cockpit voice recorder. Grunt. Mullen. Holy... Sound familiar to a stall warning, repetitive chime. Mullen. What the hell are we into? We're stuck in it. States. Get out of it. Get out of it. End of recording. Based on the cockpit voice recorder, it can be deduced that the flight crew was likely convinced that the out-of-control aircraft was the victim of severe wake turbulence. On the ground, given the timing of the accident so soon after 9-11, and without evidence to the contrary yet, it was natural to conclude that terrorists had struck again. The accident resulted in 265 fatalities, including five on the ground. The aircraft crashed into a neighborhood located across the bay and about four miles from the airport destroying four homes and damaging six others. Part 3. Gathering Evidence Air crash investigators began examining the wreckage as it was recovered from the crash site. The majority of the aircraft was destroyed upon impact, but all major components were accounted for. The vertical rudder was found in Jamaica Bay about three-quarters of a mile away from the main wreckage site, indicative of separation prior to the crash of the aircraft. The recovery of the vertical stabilizer provided the first evidence that would lead the investigators back to the root of the cause, root of the crash. The vertical stabilizer stood 27 feet 3 inches tall and would have been attached to the tail of the aircraft via six lug holes approximately 2 inches in diameter. Traditionally, these would have been constructed of aluminum, but Airbus began introducing large carbon fiber composite components with the A310 in the early 1980s. Although only in use for about two decades at the time, carbon fiber composite components were considered safe and a failure of of such a component had not been recorded prior to American Airlines Flight 587. The investigators noted on the vertical stabilizer that the left side lugs had evidence of stress from compression and the right side had evidence of stress from tension. This was indicative of the vertical stabilizer being exposed to a strong force from the right bending it. A strong wind gust could cause a large force of the, on the vertical stabilizer, but was unlikely to be strong enough to stress the lugs as discovered in the wreckage. It was determined that the likely cause of stress was a significant yawing motion resulting from pilot inputs. 
Therefore, these control inputs resulted in, a, in the separation of the vertical stabilizer from the aircraft. I'll explain how, control, how pilot control inputs can result in overstressing the vertical stabilizer to failure. When the rudder pedals are neutral, a symmetric vertical stabilizer rudder system serves to keep the nose pointed straight and is not producing lift. The large wings located left and right of the fuselage produce lift upward in order to counteract gravity. The vertical stabilizer rudder system produces lift left and right as required to point the nose by pulling the tail left or right. The curve of an airfoil away from symmetry is what results in lift as air now travels over and under the airfoil differently, creating the pressure differential that is lift. In the case of the vertical stabilizer rudder system, the rudder turns creating the curve away from the symmetry and therefore lift in one direction. A rudder turn to the left results in lift on the right side of the vertical stabilizer rudder system. This lift pulls the tail to the right and pushes the nose to the left. The rightward movement of the tail, if sudden, can result in an excessively large low pressure area developing on the left side of the vertical stabilizer rudder system, which can result in a bending moment on it. In the case of American Airlines Flight 587, this bending moment is what ripped the vertical stabilizer from its mounts, resulting in a loss of control and crash of the aircraft. With some certainty as to what happened to the aircraft, the investigation turned to why. Part 4. Confusion and bad training take their toll. Aircraft structural failures in flight resulting from turbulence-induced stress are rare, but not unprecedented. There have been four crashes of a major airliner that were initiated by turbulence. On February 14, 1953, a National Airlines DC-6 crashed off the coast of Alabama en route from Tampa to New Orleans. It is believed that in-flight separation of aircraft structural components caused the crash and loss of 46 lives. On April 17, 1957, a twin-prop British Royal Air Force aircraft encountered turbulence seven minutes after departure from Aqaba, Jordan. The turbulence overstressed the left side wing spar, resulting in separation of the left wing in flight and subsequently spinning out of control into the ground, killing all 27 people on board. On March 5, 1966, a BOAC Boeing 707 crashed shortly after takeoff because turbulence from winds off of Mount Fuji ripped the vertical stabilizer from the airliner, resulting in a flat spin and impact, killing all 124 on board. And on August 6, 1966, a Braniff Airways twin turbojet aircraft en route to Omaha, Nebraska, encountered a severe updraft in a th thunderstorm during its approach into Epley Airfield. The updraft caused the failure of the vertical stabilizer in the right elevator. On its way down, the right wing separated from the aircraft. The aircraft caught fire and entered a flat spin before impacting and killing all 42 people on board. Still, these accidents happened over 35 years previously and were largely the result of poor weather forecasting and associated information provided to the crew. Weather forecasting has improved immensely since then and the wind's visibility and temperature on November 12, 2001 were ideal for flying. The only likely probable cause of the separation of the vertical stabilizer were material fatigue, and vertical stabilizer stress beyond design limitations induced by either extreme wake turbulence or pilot inputs. The standard account of the crash, as told by most aviation professionals and enthusiasts, is that First Officer Stenmullen overreacted to the wake turbulence caused by the Japan Airlines 747 with extreme rudder inputs, eventually leading to the in-flight separation of the vertical stabilizer. 
This is a misleading account of the crash and deprives the aviation industry of a valuable set of lessons as well as needlessly making a scapegoat out of Mullen. It is true that the control inputs of Sten Mullen were the direct cause of the crash, but I wouldn't qualify his actions as the root cause. For this, I believe there are three causes. Training, control design, and doctrine. When taken together, these combine to make the root cause of the accident. The Training In 1996, American Airlines began developing a training program for their pilots based on accident data from 1987 through 1996. I consider the idea of developing such a program for their pilots to be an excellent example of a proactive step to improving air safety. However, even safety programs with good intentions may not always be benign. By studying accidents involving large multi-engine transport category aircraft, American Airlines found that pilot loss of control was a leading causal factor. From their research, they decided that pilots should receive additional training on handling high angle of attack maneuvering, unusual attitudes, microbursts, engine failure at low altitude and energy, ground proximity warning system, and high altitude aircraft upset. This program, known as the Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program, or AAMP, was ready in 1997. American Airlines made every effort to get the training right, even going so far as setting up a conference in which, which aircraft manufacturers, Government agencies such as the FAA, NTSB, and military, as well as airlines, were invited to attend. During this conference, the ground training and simulator were demonstrated and feedback from participants was requested. In a joint letter from some of the participants of the conference, they largely praised the AAMP. They did, however, take issue with what they interpreted to be teaching the rudder as a means of correcting a roll while at a high angle of attack, which is a nose-high position relative to the direction of travel. American Airlines responded that they did not teach using the rudder as the primary means of roll control while at a high angle of attack. They pointed to segments of their training, including videos of early ground training from September of 1997, that emphasized that the rudder should be used smoothly and with small inputs to complement the movement of the ailerons and spoilers on the wings. Some American Airlines literature from spring of 1997 contradicted the American Airlines corporate position on the use of the rudder as stated in their response to the joint letter. An American Airlines technical pilot at the time was concerned that the handouts of the, from the AAMP stated, At higher angles of attack, the rudder becomes the primary roll control. He was also concerned that AAMP instructor pilot was teaching pilots that they should be using the rudder to control roll when encountering wake turbulence at high angles of attack. What was being taught to line pilots during the spring of 1997 is germane to the accident that occurred on November 12, 2001, as both the captain and first officer of American Airlines Flight 587 had attended their initial training in 1997. Both the captain and the first officer received annual training every year since. Although American Airlines may not have believed that they were overemphasizing the use of the rudder during high angle of attack aircraft upsets, they may have been inadvertently teaching this. Even the American Airlines technical pilot believed that they were in fact explicitly teaching this at the time. Having sat through aviation training myself, I have seen people pull different things from the training, perhaps emphasizing one aspect or maneuver while ignoring another aspect. The instructor of a course can never be sure as to what lessons the student is going to take away and how, which is why it is important to properly sift through the material for inconsistencies and have outsiders review the training and take seriously their perspective. Further exacerbating the potentially problematic training from the uh, problematic training was the program which was being run on the flight simulator. 
In order to put the crew into a severe flight attitude situation, control inputs were turned off when a wake turbulence event was encountered. The aircraft would roll 10 degrees to the left or 10 degrees to the right before rolling in the opposite direction. At 50 degrees of roll, the use of flight controls would begin to phase in over the course of 1.3 seconds. By the time the pilot had full control of the aircraft, he had already rolled to 90 degrees. In an actual encounter with wake turbulence, the pilots would have control during the entire time. Further, the AAMP instructor would tell the pilots in the simulator that they were taking off behind a 747, the same aircraft that preceded American Airlines Flight 587 before it crashed. This may have had the effect of causing a pilot to subconsciously associate a 747 with the severe wake turbulence event experienced in the flight simulator. Data gathered from pilots by NASA between 1988 and 1999 found that wake turbulence encounters most commonly resulted in rolls of less than 30 degrees and not more than 60 degrees on the rare occasion when extreme roll angles were reported. These data further found that wake turbulence encounters of aircraft the size of the aircraft, accident aircraft were less frequent and less, less severe than the remainder of the sample. Based on the AAMP, Sten Mullen was trained to believe that wake turbulence was a violent and potentially catastrophic event with rolls up to 90 degrees in particular when taking off behind a 747. His concern for wake turbulence can be deduced from his statements prior to takeoff. This expert was taken from the cockpit uh, transcript and highlights his concern for wake turbulence. Mullen, after being cleared for takeoff. You happy with that distance? States, we'll be alright once we get rolling. He's supposed to be 5 miles by the time we're airborne. That's the point. Mullen, so you're happy. In, additionally, in addition to this possibly misguided understanding of the severity of wake turbulence, Mullen also may have believed that the best method for recovering from a wake turbulence encounter, while at a high angle of attack, would have been to use the rudder as the primary means of control. Being led to believe that the wake turbulence was a severe event and likely to be encountered when following behind a 747, as in the training, Mullen may have simply been accurately reflecting his training a quality that he had been praised for in the past, but was fatal at this time. The Control Design Another major factor in the crash of American Airlines Fight 587 was the utilization of the rudder by the first officer. Most transport aircraft pilots don't use the rudder pedals over 200 knots, generally only using them when landing and taking off in crosswinds. As a result of this, it is likely that most pilots do not completely understand how pedal inputs will manifest themselves at the vertical stabilizer when air speeds are above 200 knots. As a result of the lack of pilot usage of the rudders, designers don't necessarily consider the effects of poor design because it was assumed the rudder use at high speeds would be limited. The rudder control system of the Airbus A300-600, the model involved in the crash, was more susceptible to over-control than other Airbus and Boeing designs. The predecessors of the Airbus A300 and the A300 um, family had a variable ratio rudder control system. The A300-600 had a variable stop rudder control system. Without getting into the design details of each system, I'll explain their effects on rudder control. With the variable ratio system, the amount of deflection of the rudder decreased for every unit of rudder pedal input as airspeed increased. This had the effect of allowing the pilot to put in the same amount of pedal input he believed necessary to accomplish yaw, and the rudder would move less as airspeed increased. This added some protection against overcontrol of the rudder. Conversely, the rudder sensitivity of the Airbus A300-600 increased exponentially 
as the airspeed increased, meaning the pilot would have to be cognizant and reduce his pedal inputs as airspeed increased. If not, this could easily result in overcontrol. Airbus went with the variable stop system for two reasons. First, pilots had requested more sensitivity for roll control from the yoke. When this change was incorporated, Airbus also increased the sensitivity of the pedals so as to keep the roll and yaw controls proportional. Second, Airbus decided to move, move on from the variable ratio system to variable stop system as the, as the stop system was more simple and the consequences of failure of this system were less severe. Another way that the design, system design may contribute to overcontrol of the aircraft was the, proportional, the proportion of the breakout force to the sensitivity of the pedals. The pedal breakout force, the force required to initially move the pedals, was 22 pounds. Following this, the pedals would be quite sensitive if the airspeed was elevated. This could result in the pilot deflecting one pedal too far after applying 22 pounds and then countering this with an equivalently extreme deflection in the other direction. The rudder control system did incorporate limiters that limited the deflection of the rudder as airspeed increased. Below 135 knots, the rudder could deflect a full 30 degrees left and right. After 135 knots, if the rudder, um, the rudder deflection, if the rudder deflection, the rudder deflection would begin to limit until it reached 9.3 degrees left or right at 250 knots. At 395 knots and above, rudder deflection was limited to 3.5 degrees left or right. Control service limitations as airspeed increases is important to prevent aircraft structural failures. However, they are only part of the solution as travel limitations don't necessarily provide immunity from structural failure resulting from over-control. This fact has come as a surprise to many experienced pilots since the crash. The Doctrine for the non-aviator, aircraft speed may seem as remarkable as the speed you choose to drive your automobile down the road. This couldn't be further from the truth. In aviation, there are a handful of speeds, each selected for a specific purpose. These different speeds are appropriate, and often required, for different flight characteristics. When flying, some of these airspeeds serve as guides to aircraft attitude. For example, on takeoff, the pilot may bring the nose up until the aircraft maintains a certain speed. At this airspeed, he knows that he is attained and is flying a certain angle. An airspeed of VX is most common on takeoff and will provide a somewhat shallow angle. The pilot may also use VY, which is a slower airspeed, but results in a steeper angle of attack. Other noteworthy airspeeds include VNE, the airspeed that aircraft must never exceed in any condition, VNO, normal operating speed, and VFE, the maximum speed at which flaps may be extended because continued flight with them extended may result in structural damage. Then there is VA, known as maneuvering speed. Whereas the other airspeeds are rather straightforward, the definition of this airspeed was misleading at the time of this accident and may have contributed to Molden's control inputs. The definition of VA, according to the FAA's Pilot's Handbook of Aeronautical Knowledge at the time, stated that any combination of flight control usage including full deflection of the controls or gust loads created by turbulence should not create an excessive air load if the airplane is operated below maneuvering speed. Prior to 2001, pilots were taught that if you were, you were safe to move the air aircraft controls to any degree necessary below maneuvering speed. If you were in turbulence, just slow down to maneuvering speed and structurally your aircraft will be fine. If you need to make a hard turn or full deflection of the rudder, you're fine so long as you're below maneuvering speed. Such was the thinking back then. 
Nearly everyone believed that these aircraft were certified to structurally tolerate a range of motions and loads within a certain range, so long as it was below maneuvering speed. This was technically true. Aircraft were indeed tested to rather extreme limits, with maneuvers such as pitching the nose up and inducing higher g-forces that would rarely, if ever, be experienced during its normal life. The catch is that these maneuvers during testing were never done in combination with other extreme maneuvers. For example, the aircraft would be rolled to 60 degrees, but the rudder would remain straight. The aircraft was not certified for a situation in which the pilot was both rolling the aircraft to an extreme angle and also applying full rudder deflection. So the belief that the pilot can roll an aircraft severely while applying full rudder deflection was wrong, but no one really knew that at the time. Part 5. Conclusion so how does an aircraft capable of handling wake turbulence and flown by a competent flight crew lose its vertical stabilizer from pilot error? No accident is a result of just one failure. Accidents are a collection of failures along the way that come together to cause catastrophe. American Airlines Flight 587 is no different. Sten Mullen wasn't an average pilot. He was an exceptional pilot. He was precise, driven to perfection, and dedicated to being a pilot. However, a flaw born in his experience manifested itself on November 12, 2001. In every flight condition he flew in, Mullen was the epitome of a perfect pilot, but he wasn't comfortable with wake turbulence. And why should he be? Given that his training demonstrated to him an encounter with wake turbulence behind a 747 could prove dramatic and potentially fatal, he was understandably cautious about flying too close behind one. Mullen seemed uncomfortable enough with the situation regarding, regarding wake turbulence that he double-checked with states prior to takeoff about the situation. Mullen's response implies that he wasn't happy with the takeoff distance and was perhaps looking to the captain to affirm his apprehension. States didn't affirm his apprehension, and Mullen didn't push it. I believe that he remained apprehensive about the possibility of wake turbulence during takeoff and after. Apprehensive about the wake turbulence from the 747 ahead of his aircraft, Mullen's apprehension was confirmed when he encountered the first disturbance from the 747. He reacted a bit dramatic given the reality of the situation. But expecting the worst, he reacted understandably. His control inputs weren't really necessary to control the aircraft and is doubtful that the aircraft was in much jeopardy. In fact, his control inputs likely led him to believe that it was the wake turbulence yawing, pitching, and rolling the aircraft and not his control inputs exacerbating the situation. After the first turbulent event died down, it is without a doubt in my mind that Mullen was even more tense about the wake turbulence. When the second bit of wake turbulence shook the aircraft, Mullen reacted even more dramatically, moving the rudder through a range of 21 degrees as opposed to the 2.6 degrees he moved it on the previous wake turbulence encounter. We can't catch a glimpse of his state of mind by a strained call for max power. This was telling in two ways. First, the captain noticed something different about him, enough to ask, you alright? Second, it seems abnormal to request max power when encountering wake turbulence as standard flying would recommend a slowdown in order to better handle the turbulence. It's possible he was trying to climb above it. In spite of all this, it is not appropriate to blame Mullen solely for the accident. American Airlines taught him that wake turbulence was a dramatic event. They also taught him, either explicitly or implicitly, that the best method for controlling aircraft roll is to use the rudder. In this light, he acted as expected. He was also led to believe that you could move the aircraft controls through a full range of motion at the speed he was traveling without damaging the aircraft, something that wasn't true. During the air entire incident, entire accident sequence, 
He may not have realized that the rudder was responding more sensitively to his inputs on the pedals. He may have thought that the abnormally large amount of yaw was the result not of his inputs, but of the wake turbulence further confirming his beliefs about wake turbulence. When you boil everything down, psychology amplified by training and perception manifested itself in an overly sensitive vertical stabilizer. The result was the complete separation of the vertical stabilizer and loss of control of the aircraft. In my opinion, Stan Mullen is as much a victim as any person that died as a result of this accident. Thank you for listening to the Design for Disaster radio podcast. For sources, check the description for this podcast.